Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. High on the 24th floor. Well, I'm not high, but we're on the 24th floor. And I thought I'd be gone from this office, but for some reason I'm hanging on by a thread here. I'm here, there's like nothing on the walls. But the exciting part is, is I'm getting to sit across from a man who has meant a lot to me in my life and my career and in many ways has changed my life and changed the lives of hundreds and hundreds of executives, network people, producers, and most importantly, comedy artists over the past 20 plus years. And I'm talking about my man, well, he's not my man, but a man, Bob Sumner. And as always, I just want to thank you guys so much for all your support. I just can't even begin to tell you it. I just feel like it doesn't come across as sincere as it is, but it's just been unbelievable, the level of comments and and response and FedExes and emails and texts. This is crazy. When you start something, you always hope that it's going to affect people in the right way. And, uh, but you, you don't know, you have confidence in yourself, obviously, and you have confidence in your ability to do things. But in the end, sometimes you just don't know. I'm reminded by this paperweight that was in Peter Engel's house. Peter Engel, the guy who created Saved by the Bell and 
so many other shows as well as Last Comic Standing with Jay Moore. But it's interesting, like this paperweight just came to me. It said, and it's probably a very famous quote, imagine everything you could accomplish if you knew you could never fail. And it's something that I think about when I think about this podcast, and it's definitely something I think about when I think about the man sitting across from me, Bob Sumner. And an amazing thing happened when Bob walked in here, because I haven't seen him in a long, long time. And for those of you who don't know, and we'll get into Bob's uh, credits, but I met him on a show that basically changed the face of television, changed the face of comedy, changed the face of how people looked at the world, showed an honest point of view of comedy that hadn't been seen on television for many, many years that maybe you could only get if you, if you saw an old Richard Pryor in concert movie. And I'm talking about HBO's Russell Simmons' Deaf Comedy Jam. And I was in New York City, and I was representing a lot of young urban comedians. I don't know why. I mean, I'm a white Jewish guy from Longmeadow, Massachusetts. I have no idea why I would take a cab up to Harlem almost every other night and go to a place called the Uptown Comedy Club and watch these sketches and stand-ups, and I literally looked like a line of cocaine on a black album cover. I, I wasn't nervous. I wasn't anxious. I felt at home, and the kind of people that I saw up there blew me away, but there was no real outlet for these acts. What happened was, if you study the history of the way late-night television worked, you could literally at the time in the early 90s count the African-American comedians who did late-night television on half a hand. I mean, Letterman probably at that point in time maybe had put on five African-American stand-up comedians. The Tonight Show, who knows, at that point maybe 10. So there was no outlet for these amazing artists who had these comedy scenes, these pockets in areas of major cities that really no one in the mainstream was aware of. And in Harlem, it was the Uptown Comedy Club. In Atlanta, there was a Comedy Act Theater. And in L.A., there was a Comedy Act Theater. So in different cities, in different pockets, there were these African-American rooms where you go in and the crowds were there. And there was also a room in New Jersey that was known as probably the hardest room ever to perform in the world, which Bob ran, which was called the Peppermint Lounge, which was like the Apollo West, where you would just get booed off the stage if you breathed the wrong way. It was incredible. But again, nobody was really getting a chance to see these artists except for 200 people at a time or 250 people at a time. But Bob worked with Russell Simmons, and he co-created this show. He came up with the concept for it, and HBO bought it. And there's a lot of things I remember about this show, but one of the things I remember most was 
the first episode that they shot. And I was fortunate enough to be invited to go there, even though Bob and I really didn't necessarily know each other that well, but he sort of saw me from afar and wondered to himself, who is this fucking guy? Where did this guy come from? He looks like Snuffleupagus with his long hair and he's just cowboy boots and the ponytail and the, the guy's got the fashion sense of Emo Phillips. And I would look at Bob and I'm like, who is this guy? Like, where did he come from? How did this happen? But we had this relationship where we had a mutual respect for the artist that I, I believed in and that I spent time with. And he always wanted to support them, which was great. And the first Def Jam episode, when I walked into this theater, the energy was like nothing you'd ever seen. The set design was like nothing you'd ever seen. Now, a lot of people disagree with me about sets. Some people say, ah, the sets don't make a difference. Do you ever turn off the Academy Awards because of the set? No. But the set here was just something really special. It, it, just, it just felt so great. And the crowd was right on the stage. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful energy. And Kid Capri and the music and the energy there was just incredible. And the first show happened to feature, in order, I will share this with you, and Bob will be glad to tell me that I'm wrong. Martin Lawrence was the host. He came out and did some time. The first act, what I remember, which, which, which shocked me, I believe, was Bernie Mac. The second act was a woman who I'd never seen before, a heavyset woman who was really, really powerful in the way she delivered things and really impressed me. That was Adele Givens. And I believe there possibly could have been a third act in between, but the final act was Bill Bellamy, if I remember correctly. And when they edited the show together, they changed the lineup, and it was Bill Bellamy, Adele Givens, and Bernie Mac. But at the show, that's the way it was. And one of the things that I remembered so much about it was you were looking at a show that had really never been done before. And so when you're looking at a show that hadn't been done before, you have to look at it in a way like, what's it going to deliver to you? Is it going to deliver to you what it looks like? And right from the moment Martin Lawrence started his, his delivery, he was a big star then. I mean, this wasn't some guy you, you, you put on to host a show that like, had been a journeyman. This guy was like hot. I mean, I don't even know how they got him to do the show. And in the middle of his opening people are jumping up and dancing around in the aisles and chest bumping each other in the middle of the set. And I'm like, I don't believe I saw this at the Comedy Connection in Boston with our white purebred Irish Catholic audience. These people were giving Martin Lawrence a standing ovation three minutes in. I thought, oh my God, how are these comedians ever going to follow this? All I knew was the Apollo. I'd go there, a black comedian would go on, do well, another one would get booed. I'm like, what's going to happen? But I remember I knew Bernie Mac because he was in Chicago, and he'd been performing for like 20 years, but again, didn't have an outlet. And Martin killed so hard 
I honestly didn't even know if this was part of Bernie's act or if he just started saying it and he meant it and it became something that reoccurred. But I'll never, ever forget this. When he came out and he said, I ain't scared of you motherfuckers. Probably a wink-wink to the Apollo and the Peppermint Lounge where people booed people off the stage when you had to follow somebody like Martin Lawrence. But Bernie Mac, 20 years into the game, he knew he played the underdog card a little bit, and then he sucker-punched them and destroyed that crowd. And from what I remember, standing ovation. I'm thinking to myself, Jesus Christ. Adele Gibbons, I picture Bernie Mac walking off stage and saying, take that, motherfucker. But Adele Gibbons goes on, and something else happens that I couldn't believe. And I'm thinking, is this real? Is this happening? Could this possibly be a plant? Bob Sumner? She's doing her act, and somebody starts heckling her. I never went to a taping in my life where people are heckling an act, let alone a woman. And she starts a dialogue with the guy. And he yells out the most offensive thing I could ever think you could yell out to a woman. He says, blow me. And I'll never forget this as well. Adele Gibbons looks at him and says, blowing you would be like throwing a whale a tic-tac. The crowd went crazy. Everybody stood. People were running around just high-fiving each other, dying. Like, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't even imagine Bob Sumner in the back and Russell thinking to themselves, God, you know, I thought this would go well, but Jesus Christ, this is unbelievable. So she gets a standing ovation. And then I'm thinking to myself, I know Bill my whole life. Bill Bellamy has known Bob Sumner his whole life. But this position here for a comic who'd probably been doing comedy maybe, I don't know how long he'd been doing at the time, five or six years. This is like the toughest situation in the world. Like how is Bill Bellamy going to follow all this after only five years in the business? And then something amazing happened. Bill Bellamy rolled out and did a routine that changed the lexicon and the verbiage of how people referred to calling up a woman and asking her to come over his place at 2, 3, or 4 in the morning. He did a whole routine around that. And what did he call it? A booty call. And Bob Sumner and Russell Simmons are in the back seeing history that on a comedy show, a part of the urban dictionary has been created on the first episode of their show. And Bill Bellamy, dressed beautifully, quaffed beautifully after all those standing ovations, doing a basically a clean act gets a standing ovation as well. And Russell Simmons walks up at the end, and I think he's going to say something and impart some wisdom, and he just says, thank you, and they both walk off together. The crowd goes crazy, and I realize 
that I have just witnessed history and I have just witnessed a situation where the course of comedy history has been changed. And when you get to sit across from somebody like Bob Sumner and know that somebody has that moment early on in their career, it's like winning a World Series in your rookie season. It's like Jeff Cesario producing the Dennis Miller Show and winning an Emmy after four episodes. It's like you're seeing something that's the greatest moment of your life unfold and you're so happy about it. And then when the series of episodes is all over, you're thinking to yourself, how am I going to follow this? And so when Bob came here, he told me it was Throwback Thursday. And he said, I have a present for you. And he brought me a photo that I have never seen of the first season of Def Jam, of somebody who I represented who has since passed away, who I worked really hard to talk with Bob about getting him on the show, and his name was Charlie Barnett, and I've talked about him a lot here. For those of you who don't know Charlie, he was the comedian and actor with curlers in his hair in the cult movie DC Cab. He was the informant on the first season of Miami Vice, and he was the greatest street performer of all time in Washington Square Park. But he was a drug user, and no one ever saw him do it, but he told me that he wanted to do Def Jam before he passed away. He told me he was dying, and he said, I have to do Def Jam. And the thing that's weird was, I had that inside and the knowledge of that, but I don't believe that he wanted me to tell anybody. So here I was, I was selling Bob on putting Charlie on the show, knowing that Charlie was really sick and knowing that Charlie was unpredictable as it was. But he said, before I go, Barry, I have to do this show because this is like the greatest show that I've ever seen. And so with Bob Sumner's help, he took a leap of faith with me, even though Charlie was the greatest street performer of all time and there wasn't any artist in the world that didn't think that Charlie was the greatest. Charlie was not suited for television. He was crazy. Not crazy in the head, but he's just a crazy act. And he did the show, and he jumped out in the crowd and did a bunch of things and almost knocked down the backdrop of the place. He didn't necessarily have the greatest set of his entire career, but when it was edited together, one of the most fantastic sets you'll ever see on television. And it was truly one of his greatest holy shit moments all due to Bob Sumner and this groundbreaking show. And sometimes in my life I have perseverance, sometimes in my life I have persistence, and sometimes in my life it's about the relationships I have where people take a leap of faith with me. And so as I'm sitting here with Bob, I'd like to say this and close off this part of the show. Bob Sumner is all love. Always in his life, he's only had the greatest intentions. That's tough sometimes. I always say, love the business. Don't fall in love with the business. 
Unfortunately, Bob Sumner fell in love with the business and has always fallen in love with the business, and he wears his heart on his sleeve. It doesn't matter because he's going to get his heart broken a lot in this business with the artists that he works with, the producers that he's worked with. But in the end, like everybody out there listening, if you can work on something, be a part of an affiliation of something that you know is groundbreaking and you know is going to change the course of whatever profession you're in, go for it and work as hard as you can within that as long as you can. Ride the bull as long as you can because no one can ever take that away from you and you will always be remembered for it. And sometimes in that scheme of the greatest opportunity of your life, there's going to be risks that you're going to be asked to take. But the thing about what you're doing out there and the thing about what Bob did with Charlie Barnett, if you have something that's never been done before, if you have something that's extraordinary, if you have something that's going to change the course of your profession, you have to take risks. And that's what will always define you. And no one will ever be able to take away the success that you've gained from that decision. And in the end, when it comes right down to it, all we ever want in our lives is to know that what we've done in our work gains the respect of our peers and the world around us. And here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you.
to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited today because my guest, Bob Sumner, is here, and I am going to give him the proper introduction, and hopefully he will not slip into a diabetic coma. All right, Bob Sumner is the co-creator of HBO's Russell Simmons' Deaf Comedy Jam and is recognized as a force in the world of comedy with over two decades of experience discovering many of the top gifted comedians that grace the stage and big screen around the world. Before joining Russell Simmons' company, Rush Communications, Bob was an independent club promoter for musicians and comedians in the tri-state area. Originally from Roselle, New Jersey, Bob graduated from Seton Hall University, leaving behind the top college radio station after single-handedly taking it to the number one spot. Sumner is definitely the man comedians want to know. He has made superstars out of many of today's most sought-after comedians. Bob is one of the most adored producers in the world of comedy, and during Deaf Comedy Jam's first season in the 1990s, he traveled across the country in search of undeniably talented comedians to shine on the show, and boy did they. Sumner was part of discovering such talent as Bernie Mac, Dave Chappelle, Chris Tucker, Bill Bellamy, Cedric the Entertainer, Mike Epps, and the Academy Award winner Monique, as well as multiple other brilliant comedians. Bob's latest venture, Laugh Mob, is a production and comedy management company with his business partner, music and comedy management titan, Arthur Spivak. Laugh Mob has produced specials that have aired on Showtime and have most recently produced Laugh Mob's We Got Next, a new type of stand-up comedy show airing on Magic Johnson's network, Aspire. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest. So much respect. So happy to have him here. When he hugged me, I cried, and that's only because I felt something move. Please welcome Bob Sumner. What's going on, Barry? How you doing? I'm fantastic. Great to see you. Great to see you. It's been a long time. Really? We're going to have some fun today. Let's do it. All right. I know know you were chomping at the bit as I was doing my cold open, so tell me all the things I got wrong and all the things I got right. I mean, it's, it's a whole lot to, you know, what you was saying, because it was basically right. It was just the years were, like, spread all over the place. I mean, the first season, even. Like, the first season of Def Comedy Jam. I can honestly tell you that the first show that we shot was, like, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And, you know, once you go into the editing bay, everything changes. But the first show that was shot was, like, 2 in the afternoon, and it was, like, pulling teeth to get people to come out. We really didn't have an audience, and we were out there. We were on 43rd Street at the Academy Theater. A lot of people thought it was the Apollo, but we were on 43rd Street, and we went out outside, out on, on Times Square, just trying to pull people in. When I saw what was going on, I had a friend who was working at Tower Records at the time, and he would take, um, he would, he was the guy that when you brought the CDs back mm-hmm. and everything, he was that guy. So he had a gift of gab, and he had like people coming in and out all day. So I said that I have the guy that can help us. And this same guy, once he started working, when you talk about changing people's lives 
it wasn't just about comedians. It was, you know, people who are executives now in the business. And this same guy, because of that day, he went from being the guy at Tower Records to the Def Comedy Jam audience coordinator to now president of black music at Atlantic Records. This is a real fucking story. You heard me? So it's that deep. But now as we jumped into the Def Comedy Jam of it all, I had already been working for Def Jam Records when, when Stan Lathan and Russell got together. And then I took the execs up to the um, Harlem to the... Uh, uh, what was it, the uh, Uptown Comedy Club, so they can see the excitement in black comedy. That's how it really came about. But I had already been at, when I was at Def Comedy Jam, or Def Jam Records, I had already been working, you know, doing the underground promoting thing. And it wasn't just the Peppermint. Prior to the Peppermint, it was Club 88. And that's where I bought Bill Bellamy to host at Club 88 before he went to the Peppermint because I had saw Bill at my first room, which was Terminal D. And Terminal D is where I would give young uh, comedians an opportunity. And also there was that new club that opened up in Harlem called the Uptown Comedy Club. So a lot of those guys who only had an opportunity to work on that Sunday night, I gave them an opportunity to come there on Tuesday nights. So that's where the Dougie Dugs and the Flexes of the world came from. That was Terminal D. And that's where I saw a young kid in 19, he had just graduated in 1988 from Rutgers University. He came in with a suit. The sleeves was kind of short, but he was, he was dapper. And that was Bill Bellamy. And I pulled Bill from there where Terry Hodges was hosting. I pulled Bill out of there because that place had gotten so, the, the, it, it was so exciting that you know how when you start something, everybody else think they could do it themselves. I saw that they didn't need me anymore. So I said, okay, I'm gonna go up to Club 88, hang out with my guy, Billy Press and Eric Livesey, see if they wanna do comedy. Everybody didn't think it would work. I brought Bill Bellamy with me, the rest was history. That's where it all tied in. And Bill was the kind of guy, he was clean cut, and he was like, always did material that was very, very clean, and rarely did he swear in his act. And so what I was going to ask you, Bob, you were working in an area where the comedy that was really going over well was the really, really, truly blue humor. How did you know that Bill Bellamy, who was the antithesis of that tone of act, would work with all those acts? Well, I mean, for me, it was all about flavor. It was all about having flavor, whether it was gonna be blue or whether it was gonna be clean, because Cedric was the same way. Cedric wasn't really a blue comic, but his delivery in, the, in, his, in his POV, his point of view, was it was right there. He, Cedric wasn't blue, but he had the urban dialect. Mm -hmm. He had the sort of like that Robin Harrisy kind of delivery. Bill Bellamy didn't. But, but Bill came from South Orange Avenue in North New Jersey. So he had he had that there was people who can identify to Bill's clean but swaggadocious ability to do what he did because when I would take them on the road, I took Adele, Bernie, Bill and Reggie McFadden, okay? He was another type. But you know, a lot of people have to understand that even the whole 
uh, 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 what what Def Comedy Jam was for a minute. You, you mentioned Kid Capri. Back in, in, in at Terminal D, I decided that we wasn't going to have the regular, oh, you know, at, at a comedy club, you hear the piano, the guy, or you see the drummer, or whatever the case may be. I was a DJ, you know, from the door. So I decided that I was going to be the DJ. I was going to be the piano guy. So I started DJing at the comedy club and made it real hip. So when it was time to do Def Comedy Jam, that element of Kid Capri was already set in place. You know, I was the first DJ in a comedy club, and Terry Hodges will tell you this. And you and know, Terry going Hodges back, was a comedian. Who, did he start? But didn't he start in DC or no? Well, no. he came. He, well, he started in in Michigan. Well, in New Orleans, he was in college. Then he went to Detroit. Well, he's from Detroit, so then he came to Harlem and, and was doing his thing. But going all the way back, Barry, that first season of Def Comedy Jam and us trying to get audiences in and this, that, and the other, and, you know, even though we edited the shows to see, you know, come out a certain type of way, the, the I Ain't Scared of You motherfuckers was Bernie Mac's second time on Def Comedy Jam. The first time was Stir It Like Coffee. Stir it like coffee and, and and take me out to the ball game. And I had Bernie and Steve Harvey on the same show. See, Bernie and Steve and them, I had relationships f- with them long before Def Comedy Jam. And Adele Givens turned me on to Bernie Mac. And that's how that all came about. And I went to Jack the Rapper, the convention, music convention, because I was working for Def, Comedy, um, Def Jam Records. I went down to Atlanta to uh, to work on the uh, event, and Bernie told me he was going to be at the Comedy Act Theater long before the Uptown Comedy down there. And when I saw Bernie perform down there, I was on the floor. And a lot of people, just like you, we don't show a lot of, we may love a comedian, but we don't show it. Bernie, I had to. I rolled on the floor, okay? Now, with Adele... It's true. We now, go we go into these rooms, and we don't really laugh. We're laughing on the inside, maybe, but we don't really laugh. Right. It takes a lot to get That's us to right. laugh. Now, Adele Givens was turned on to me by the comedy duo of Arsenal and Mitchell. Arsenal and Mitchell, <laughs> of course. Okay? So that's who told me about Bernie. Now, when... When HBO finally wanted to give us the, de- the the deal for Def Comedy Jam, we did a showcase at a place called Sweetwaters. Chris Rock was the host. We actually lost the tape. The guy wanted to get some barbecue in Nork, and his car got broken into, and we had that one tape. <laughs> and on this show was like a who's who in comedy, including Bernie Mac, Bill Bellamy, and, and Adele Givens. And that's when a guy in the audience was, he couldn't believe the size of Adele's lips. And he screamed out, you know, he would lo- love to get some head from her. And she said, brother, let me tell you something, giving you some head would be like giving a whale a Tic Tac. You should have saw the excitement on television, which was staged. That was cool Bubba Ice in the audience who said that. That cool. was all staged, but it had happened before. And when it happened, it was Bedlam. And I thought to myself, so was there, could this be staged right. or could this not so be? So that's how that went down. And Cool Bubba Ice was a, an impressionist who was uh, <laughs> from the Uptown Comedy Now, and let me take you back to the Bill Bellamy of it all. Bill Bellamy's booty call, if you do the math, that, ho- that came from the whole Mike Tyson situation. 
right, which came after that. What happened with Bill's first set was Bill was talking about parking your car in a bad neighborhood, and he said this is before this stuff happened. He said that there was a device that talked back to your car, and that's when the lights and stuff was talking to him. That was Bill's first season. So it was a whole lot. That's why I said it's a lot of mixtures, and even Martin Lawrence. Now, Martin Lawrence got the Martin show after the second season of Def Comedy Jam. And that's when we had to, you know, he was so exhausted that we moved into the next world. But when Martin first started hosting Def Comedy Jam, it was based on a tribute to Robin Harris at the Apollo Theater, where he wasn't even the top of the bill. The top of the bill was all those living color guys and uh, Paul Mooney. You know what I mean? Paul so, Mooney, yeah. great comedian. So, he used to write so, Richard Pryor. Yeah, so a whole lot of how the whole Def Comedy Jam thing was mixed and matched. It just, and then Chris Tucker came later. Cedric came later, you know, but Eddie Griffin was another one that stood out, you know, Simply Marvelous. We had a lot. Ted Carpenter. So there's so so much to it. There was a comedian named Tony Woods from D.C., very funny comedian, great, great delivery, slow, but really powerful. Hung out with Chappelle a lot. They had a great kind of tone about them. When Tony did Def Jam, his whole dates changed. His whole, you know, when he was doing personal appearances, he would get more. But, you know, it wasn't that big a change for a guy who there weren't a lot of outlets to work. But was the comical thing about it was this. He was going through some kind of a divorce or something like that. And so he'd go back to D.C. and his ex-wife would be like, where's my money? Give me some money. You're a millionaire now. You're on oh, Def Jam. Boy. And people didn't understand that, and get this, every person that Bob has mentioned who did Def Jam worked for a buyout of less than $1,000. They never made any money for any extra airings, nothing. It was a complete buyout. And so the people that you saw on that show, even though they got the greatest exposure in the world and millions of people saw them, and people thought they were millionaires... They only made a thousand dollars. If that. If that. Yeah. And that was amazing about However, it. however, if you were able to land a spot on the Deaf Comedy Jam tour, you were able to make a thousand dollars a show. You know what I'm saying? Which was big money. Say if we playing fifty dates, you made fifty thousand dollars. A lot of these comedians were working for seventy five dollars a night. You know this. That's right. You know, I could tell you a true story when Bill got MTV. There was a showcase that was being set up at my club with myself and the MTV executives, and they wanted this whole lineup of white comedians. And I said, I just think, you know, you should probably look for uh, a black comedian, too. They said, well, we're not really interested. I said, there's this guy. You'll love him. He hosts the Peppermint Lounge. He's great. Put him on, Bill. And he, I got the call that he got the gig, but I really wasn't um i don't know what how to say this i really didn't have a wherewithal as a young manager and a knowledge of of what i was doing or how to do it and i i didn't even press to do anything with the deal i didn't have any sense at that time what could be probably Bear. and and so and 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 bill had this great relationship with bob where bob was taking care of and and driving bill's career forward and 
he did an amazing thing and they worked together and Bill became a VJ for like seven years and it changed the course of everything. But here's the story to that. Besides the showcase and everything. Mixtape. Okay. Besides all that. Yeah, it's a mixtape. It's always going to be. Because there was, an, there was a showcase. There was a showcase going on in, in, in New York. It was a monthly showcase and this is when Uptown Records was very, very hot. And at the showcase, you would have all of these performers, whether it was Heavy D, Father MC, a young Mary J. Blige, they're all performing at this place. It's like R&B Live. So in between sets, it's like real, like nothing's going on. And as I'm seeing this, I'm like, this is a perfect spot for a host, Some a comedian, somebody need to be hosting this thing. So I spoke to uh, the late, Dwayne Taylor, one of the producers, along with uh, Kirk Barrows and Renee McLean, and um, they were they were they were doing doing this show, and, and Wendell Haskins, they were doing this show, and I said to him, I said, "Hey man, one of you know my guys from Def Comedy Jam need to be in this thing, entertaining you know the audience while it's dark, and um, while you guys are waiting you know for the next act or whatever the case may be." So they were like, "Bob, that that sounds pretty cool. Who do you have?" I said, well, you know, a lot of people are liking Bill, and Bill has that flavor where he's, you know, he's clean cut. So, you know, all of the execs and stuff can handle this guy. He said, well, let's take a shot. So I called Bill, and Bill said, how much are they paying? (laughs) And I said, B, I don't know. I might be able to get you $50, (laughs) right? He was like, all right, well, you know, let's, let's, let's do it. So Bill I never forget the first night that he did the show, it was these young kids that Jermaine Dupree had brought up from Atlanta, okay? And they was wearing their clothes backwards. And then they did this song and they became these this mega hit called Jump. It was crisscross. So this was a crazy, crazy night. Wow. So now we go to the next day, I get a phone call from a young lady who also was at MTV and she was vice president of talent and she saw this guy there, okay? Come to find out, he's the same guy that has showcased at the Boston, okay? Boston Comedy Club where I was. Right, and it becomes, you know, he goes in, because they had this show called Fade to Black that they was trying to fade out for this other show called MTV Jams. And Bill goes in for the test and it was horrifying. But you knew that he had the goods. Okay, and Rod Asa was his, was the assistant at That's the time. That's right, Rod Asa, and he and that the rest was history for Bill. And just, just so you know, it was horrible because what they do is they use teleprompter when you're hosting. And for those of you out there that you're thinking a lot of times like I used to think about a teleprompter, well, you see the big television screen in the back of the room when somebody's hosting, and or you see the president. And he's doing the thing and he's got the clear plastic thing and you know something's on it. But the way the teleprompter works in television back then and still to this day, uh, when you watch the news, if you watch somebody delivering the news, you'll notice their eyes are moving a certain way. That's because the actual words are coming across on the face of the lens of the camera. And that's where the teleprompter is. But if you're not used to that, it's difficult. But you get it together as, as time goes. That's why you need that opportunity. But staying with on the Bill Bellamy of it all, we are now on tour. Finally, there's the Def Comedy Jam tour. We played. Our first date was in Massachusetts. Our second date was in Bernie and Adele's 
hometown of Chicago. And I never forget, it was the biggest thing. It was like the Beatles were coming to town. And as we are, it was cold. And as we are standing on on the side of the stage and, and the show's going on, Bill and I are standing there and the side door opens and they set up these three chairs for these guys who they don't want them to sit in the audience, okay? So now as the door opens, Bill and I look and the first guy that walked in was the Chicago Bears Hall of Fame defensive end, Richard Dent. We're wow. like, wow, that's Richard Dent. Who comes in behind Richard Dent? But the greatest multi-sports athlete ever, Bo Knows. Bo Jackson, <laughs> he walks in. He was playing for the White Sox at the time. So here's Richard Dent. And Bo Jackson and Bill and I are freaking. We're like, what is going on here? And then the grand finale. I think he was going on his third NBA championship. He had on black slacks and this black blazer with these different colored checks, right? And he comes in and he goes, what's going on, Bill? And pats him on the back. (laughs) Bill looks at me. And goes, Bob, Michael Jordan knows my name. (laughs) Bill and I had this saying, right, just like a car going down a hill. And, you know, my assistant Carlos is from San Francisco, so he he can attest to this. You go down the hill, and all of a sudden, you go to push on the brakes, and there's no brakes. You just keep going. From that moment on, Bill and I looked at each other and we said, no breaks. <laughs> and here we are. You know? That's fantastic. That's a true story. That's fantastic. <laughs> so if you don't mind, I'd like to go way, way back. Let's go back. We're going way back. Back into time. We're going back to where you were born, where you grew up, what kind of socioeconomic area you were in and how were your parents and your brothers and sisters and then... Let me know what the after that what the first inspiration was to get into the entertainment business. Well, this is really cool that you would ask me this question because I'm I'm dealing with a a, a situation right now that you can call it full circle. Okay, I grew up uh, in a a middle class neighborhood that wasn't too far from the neighborhood, if you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a very diverse area but you can get the best of both worlds. And that's why I tell everybody I have a degree from Seton Hall University, but I'm actually more proud of my degree from St. George Avenue University. And that was where I was out there doing what I was doing. If you saw straight out of Compton, my life was pretty much like that. I was into music, I was into doing my thing, but I was slinging. I was that young guy having a lot of fun, but I was able to change that to joke slinging or whatever the case may be without slinging jokes. All right, everybody knows that I'm a, I'm kind of a, I was the, the A student of both games, you know. I was a straight-up athlete. I was a, I knew how to do it all. I was fortunate to have parents who, my parents split at a young age. I was young, but I was fortunate to have them still both in my life. You know, where a lot of people didn't have that when their parents split, dad is like gone and this, that, and the other. So it was easy for me to 
deal with both, but by having like a single house, a single parent house, it gave me more freedom to mix and match and move around because going back to my career and how did I get in the entertainment business, my mom worked for RCA Records. You know, she was in the royalties and she dealt with Elvis's stuff and all that. My my brothers were musicians. They had a singing group. They used to record at Sigma Sounds out in Philly. So I knew all about that. And my dad, you know, dipped and dabbed in the business too. And then he, you know, became a full-fledged barber and was also the truant officer at my high school, which made it very, very interesting. But more so than all of that, the entertainment buzz came from my parents would go to the world-famous Apollo Theater to see my uncle perform. My uncle's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I don't know if you ever knew that. No. But yeah, my, my uncle was Tony Williams, who was the lead singer for a singing group called The Platters. I did not know yeah, that. Yeah, and then I have another uncle that played for the New York Yankees uh, during the heyday, Willie Randolph. Willie Randolph is your uncle. Yeah. So him and my, my dad, they're married to two sisters, and Gretchen is actually Kelly Ripper's best friend. So it's a whole lot to me that a lot of people didn't know. But I say all that to say my aunts lived in Harlem. So we would always, on Sunday, we would go to the matinee shows at the Apollo Theater. And I'm, I'm like five, five years old. So we would go to the matinee shows at the Apollo Theater as well as we would go to amateur night, like religiously, every Wednesday. So I was I was there and I was watching, and this is what made me start the comedy shows back in North New Jersey, because I would see Pigmeat Markle. I would see a young Richard Pryor, and almost every week I would see Jackie Moms Mabley. You know what I mean? So I was like around comedy as a little kid, so it was always in me. So now as I've just accepted this job as curator of comedy at the world famous Apollo Theater, we're getting ready to do these projects, you know, with my Laugh My brand. And it's like, it's just unbelievable. And, you know, a lot of people who ask, you know, why Laugh Mob? What does Laugh Mob mean? Laugh Mob is the acronym for mob is more of Bob's best. That's just how I feel. You know, so when you say the thing about falling in love with comedy and how I've done that, I'm going to say this to you, and I, and I mean this. I love comedy, but I don't like comedy because a lot of people in this business aren't as passionate as we are about this and keeping it real, B-Cats, you know? So there you have it. It's true. Tell me how you get the gig as the curator of comedy for the world-famous Apollo Theater. Now, the Apollo Theater, for those listening in other parts of the world or throughout the country that may not be as familiar with the Apollo, this is a place that every year you hear a story, it's going under, they're tearing it down, they don't have the money, no one can finance it anymore, no one's going to take care of it, it's gone. I mean, literally, the boy who cried wolf about 57 times since I've been in comedy I don't know why this theater is so expensive to upkeep. I don't know who owns the theater, but it seems to me that you'd think somebody would just buy the theater and just do it, but whatever. Why don't you talk about what the story is with the Apollo and why it's been so troubled to keep open and keep going and, and what it is that hasn't been happening that they brought you in that they want to happen from the arrangement with you. Well, I, I believe what has happened is 
The man upstairs know that the Apollo has done so much for so many people. Wait, no the different. white the white man upstairs hey, or the black no, man upstairs? No, both of them. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 what it is is I mean you the Apollo has been so so monumental, you know, in, in, in doing things as you know. Amy Schumer, Chris Rock just did a HBO special there, so evidently people are checking on the Apollo. You know, that's what's happening. And because of the long history there, you know, it's just been something that it just won't leave us and it will be preserved. And the board of directors and everything, I just got this phone call and how it came about is, you know, they were like going after the celebs, trying to figure out how they're going to bring comedy back to the Apollo because they had just brought D'Angelo back to show that music is back, you know, besides Amateur Night, which has been running forever, you know, they wanted to like bring the art form, whether it was music or, or comedy, back into the place. And when they saw that everything was going well with their Apollo Music Cafe and bringing shows into the main room, they said, well, let's you know, do this thing with comedy again, but let's figure out how we're going to do it. And I, I have to give it up to my man from Uptown Magazine, Brett Wright. He told him about this guy named Bob Sumner who has done so much for comedy. And, you know, a lot of people think these other people did it, but I have a formula to this. There is no one that can do a stand-up comedy show like me but me. You know, you could go out there and do a show the way you do it, just like you could make Coca-Cola or Pepsi. It's a formula, and I have a formula that with Laugh Mob, it's going to show, and it's going to show even at the Apollo Theater because we have a couple different phases to it, with, with, with one being in the main phase being the emerging comedians, like the next group. So that's where the curation comes from me, identifying who is out here and you know I would travel all over the country to find these comedians. People don't know that Craig Robinson, Ricky Smiley, these guys also, it ain't just about the kings and queens of comedy with me. Cheryl Underwood drove from California with someone else, I don't know who drove her, but it made sense because you know I, I was telling the story on, on um, TV One Unsung about Bernie and Cheryl. Cheryl drove all the way from California to perform in front of me. You know, and that's how she got on Def Jam. And it's so many stories like that. Dion Cole, Mike Epps. You know, I've, I've had my finger on the pulse for a long time. So now the Apollo has caught on to it. And um, everyone's going to see why the next generation is going to make it. Because from 1990 to 99, we were taking them by the dozens. And you notice, you was, a lot of your artists was coming out. But from 2000 to 2010, has been a lost generation in terms of, you know, soul comedy, I like to call it. And, and we, um, we are going to show that it, there is the next generation. I have some young kids right now that are really, really destined for stardom, giving the opportunity. It's all about opportunity. Let's go back to the Apollo for a second. Mm -hmm. Why is the Apollo Theater a nonprofit? Why isn't there somebody who just owns it and puts on shows? How much can it possibly cost to keep the Apollo Theater open a year that they can't make back doing, you know, shows with people? Well, you know, I'm, I'm one that, and everybody knows that, I have always been a guy who stayed in my lane, okay? My lane these days is curating the comedy for them. I really haven't, until now, I can ask that question. I'm not going to answer a question that I don't have the answer for. So 
what I'll do now is maybe come back and, and, and go do some research on what that's all about because I really, really don't know okay. how they operate. But what I do know is that they're serious about trying to keep entertainment rolling over there, how so, they're going about it. Because you're right, it was closed, it was open, but right now it, it seems like they're really, really but flowing. But in my mind, if I were the curator of the Apollo, and I was wondering how are we going to get things going the way they're going to go. What I would try to do through my relationships, just like you would try to do with yours, mm -hmm. you identify, let's say, 10 artists mm -hmm. that are really special artists. Whether you love their comedy or you don't, they can pack a room, and they can pack a room 10, 10 20 shows, whatever. And so you take somebody, let's say like, you know, your Mike Epps or your, or your Dave Chappelle or your Kevin Hart, and mm -hmm. you go with them and you say, look, this place, it needs this amount of money a year to operate. We'd love to have you in here. Just let us take our expenses and then give us one show. I don't care if it's four o'clock in the afternoon or six o'clock at night at midnight, just one show. I don't care if you host the show just give us one show. And if you did that with 10 artists and you got that one show, each one, then you got the respect factor, like you said, with Chris Rock doing the special there, Amy Schumer getting special, and the place is, is where you want it to be. And then you can always build up. Young comedians, as you know, you can always build that up. No doubt about it. But to get the cred of saying, hey, we're back, I would think that's the way... To do it, who would say no to that? I'm, I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna tell you straight up. This is part of the like and love because no matter how many of these comedians who careers we done started this, that, and the other, you still have to jump through hoops after, and that's what's been happening right now. So that's part of what's what totally you're spot on. With you're what trying you're to saying. tell me names listen, not to be mentioned here. Listen, say no to that. Listen, listen, B. Okay, I'm not. It's that's what's happening, and some are going to come, and some aren't, until the other ones do. You know, a lot of times they want to see the first one, and then after that, everybody want to jump on board. That happens, and that's what's happening right now. So we're getting to that that point because, like I said, it's three levels to it, and that's one of the levels to keep that room rolling. But <laughs> so you're trying uh, to tell everybody me everybody want to get a deal memo. Everybody, I didn't talk to all these agents around here who didn't know these guys before I put them on to them, and now I have to call the agent and all that. It's that's where the love and light come from, man. Straight up, I'm. I can go. We're talking about the building of Def Comedy Jam and all that. Bruh, a lot of times people get amnesia out this piece. And I'm here to remind you that it's real. And, and, and anybody that tell you about me, you know, I'm a straight Jersey cat, you know? And when I come out here to Hollywood, it blows my mind to run into some of those people who used to stand in line to get on board. And now they, it, it, it's, it's midnight and they got on dark shades. I'm like, if you don't take those damn sunglasses off, let's keep it real. So, you know, everybody got their little comedy shows around here. Everybody are aficionados of comedy. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I'm laughing at you right now. <laughs> talk to me. Let's talk about some holy shit moments in your career. You holy talked about the moments. Michael Jordan, Richard Dent, and Bo Jackson mm -hmm. one. Tell our audience if all of your stories, as I like to say, were drowning in the ocean. <laughs> 
and you could only save one or two or three that you want to tell our audience that would just blow them away, what would come to mind as the highlight chapters of your book? The highlight chapters of my book. Wow. The highlight chapters of my book, man, it, it is so, so deep. Well, this particular story is when we started rolling on a tour bus. We used to fly everywhere until we realized we were so, uh, we were so like naive to touring that we didn't realize that we didn't have to put 10, 12 people on an airplane. You know what I mean? We can just get a, a bus, route it, and roll. So as we're rolling from year to year, because Def Comedy Jam was like a, a high school yearbook for us. It was like, you know, Bill and those guys was the class of 92, this, that, and the other. So we're going to go to probably the class of 97, 98. And I had brought a, um, I had brought a uh, photo album on, on, on the bus. So I'm over here watching something on TV or whatever, and some of the guys are sitting around at the little kitchenette, and they're looking at the photo album, and they're pointing, like they're looking at, you know, these pictures of back-in-the-day guys. So you figure it's 1997, 98, and they're looking at these photos from back in 93, 94. So everybody is, like, stuck on this one guy. Like, who is he? And none of these comedians, and these are known comedians who should know their history. They're trying to figure out who is this guy. So I went to see who they're talking about, and it was Charlie Barnett. Wow. And I'm like, it's like five comedians here, and none of them knew the history of who Charlie Barnett is, who you gave the history of who Charlie was. And I'm saying to myself, Wow, you mean to tell me I have aged myself to this point? <laughs> Seriously. So it was like, you know, it it was a crazy, crazy time for me. Crazy time for me. So I would say that that was an interesting moment. Another interesting moment was when I was able to put Wildman Steve and Dolomite Rudy Ray Moore on Def Comedy Jam. I mean, for me, that was like... Very, like I like I couldn't believe that I was working with these guys. Not that they had the greatest sets on the show, but just to have that opportunity. But one story that I definitely want to um, uh, have some some clarity on is the Bernie Mac "I Ain't Scared of You" story. Okay, what actually happened was this: unlike the Apollo, where you can boo, we. We were at such the early stages of Def Comedy Jam that we never on the cue cards said no booing, okay? So and we didn't think that people were going to come in there. Even though we were in New York City, we didn't think that people would come in there and actually start booing. So as I would go around the country, I would, like, really, I knew that if we were going to air 48 comedians, I would showcase 60 comedians, knowing that 12 of them may not make it or it was a great thing that they did and for comedians it caused anxiety for some because what they would do was this amazing thing where where they would book an extra comedian every right. show just in case somebody bombed That's or right. didn't do well and then they would edit one of them out for 
the program. And so, and occasionally what happened was there's people who actually did fairly well. That didn't make it. That didn't make it. And then they had to bring them back for the next Maybe. series. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Because if you, because if you were good enough on someone else's show, but two other people on this show didn't work, we'll just edit it out. And you might not even notice it on, on the television screen or when Martin or whoever was the host will say their name, it would be a long shot. And I use this technique on, on a, a number of uh, shows that I did as well. If you notice on Def Jam, when Martin introduced the act, he walked in one direction and then the other act walked down. Right. And then when it said goodnight, he'd pass them. But by that point, it didn't make any difference because the fact was is that you'd already gotten the introduction differently. Big up to Stan Lathan. and that was one of his tricks of the trade. Yeah. You know, but but so what happened this particular night was I had five comedians perform. And the first two comedians come on stage. Then the third comedian came on stage. Or no, the first comedian came on stage. Then the second comedian came on who didn't really do that well. And that spot was always my two and three. I would never know what I was going to get. So that was the spots that you play with. So this particular night, this comedian really, really didn't do well. But now remember... It's two more people coming on before Bernie Mac, okay? So when Bernie Mac came on stage, everybody had already forgot about that guy who came on second. So when Bernie said, I ain't scared of y'all, it took everybody back to that guy. And that's what made it even funnier. And the other part to it is, remember, Bernie had already been touring and hosting the tour. Okay, Martin didn't host the tour. Bernie was the host of the tour. So now Kid Capri and Bernie Mac had that chemistry. So when Bernie would say, kick it, or whatever, it was like a vaudeville type thing going on. So it just made that set that much more powerful. So it wasn't really nothing more than Bernie Mac having, you know, his thought pattern was like, I'm going to clown what happened but I'm going to do it like this. So there you have it. Let's do a little six degrees of separation. Mm. You don't mind, do you? I'm going to mention the name of somebody, and you tell me what comes to your mind, anything that comes to your mind, anything that moves you, anything you want to share. Could be a story. Could be one word. I'm with you. Martin Lawrence. It, it's so much to say about Martin, but... What 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 I what I have to say more so than anything else was Martin was prepared. Preparation was everything for Martin to the point whereas when people would like trip off of when he would find somebody in the audience and would and when and would like play off of it. He knew to have us sit certain people, certain places, and it would help him not to have to just have a bunch of material for each opening because it's hard to keep it up like that. So he was smart enough to know that part of his opening was going to be who can I mess with tonight. So you placed them there. Yeah, it was it was a beautiful thing, but it was all 
and, and then Martin had to come up with, he was so quick with it. Like all we did was place them and then he wrote the rest. So that's why I said it was just prepared. The guy was a, a genius and that's why he can come back today and, and, and do what he's doing. Dave Chappelle. <laughs> mm. Dave Chappelle, as you know, he, he started out, you know, from a, from a kid, you know, he definitely blossomed into a rock star. You and I can look at each other and say, who knew? We knew. Um, I have to t- say this story, and, 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 and God, God bless uh, this promoter who's no longer here. But, you know, Dave, for me, is like everybody thinks that Dave is this hilarious comedian. Okay, Dave Chappelle isn't really any more funnier today than he was when he was 18 years old. When he was 18 years old, that's when he was really, really popping. You know, right now, everybody and going back to this is why I I, I don't like comedy. I love comedy, but I don't like it because everybody's accepting this guy now because of his rock star status more so than anything else. I used to try to once Bernie and and Bill and them moved on and I had to like try to put comedians on the next tours. I would always try to sell these promoters, Dave Chappelle, and they wouldn't bite. But now it's a whole Dave will sell out a show in three minutes. So for me, I I just I just say with him, if I if I if I had one word, I would say unbelievable. Mike Epps. Tell you a true story about Mike Epps. Okay? I know if there was a word, people could say what they want about my dude, but that's one where I don't have to say I like comedy. I love comedy. I'm proud of Mike. I watched Mike uh, almost lose it, okay? Because the man, his, his talent has always been there. I still say to Mike, Every time I see him, you still have to do this one-man show. Mike put on a one-man show over on Lafayette Street back in the mid-'90s that was phenomenal. The guy is multi-talented, but he had some other things that he had to work on, and there was a definite struggle for him, okay? And I'm going to just be straight up with you. When Mike was struggling, it was hard. He was living from show to show. And it got to a point where and he's very proud of himself, you know, but he called me one day because he needed a couple dollars to get to the next moment in life. I'm living in Jersey. He's in, in New York. And I said, Mike, if you can get a dollar from somebody. Now, this is a guy who has I don't know how many Bentleys now and this, that and the other now. But at this time, I said, if you can find a dollar to get to the PATH train, I'll meet you in Newark, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you something, right? Sure enough, when I pull up, Mike is there. He comes to my truck, and I slid him 150 bucks, okay? You don't owe me nothing, Mike. Just take this, and this should get you until your next gig, okay? After 
he did next Friday and things started coming along for him. And we, um, I was running back and forth to LA. I came out to do a uh, deaf comedy jam, came back for two seasons. Mike is now going to host the first season back of deaf comedy jam. And Mike came up to me and Mike said, Bob, I will never ever forget what you did for me. And that $150 that I gave Mike Epps, Mike put $300 in my palm and said, I love you, man. I love you too, Mike. Wow, that's awesome. Chris Tucker. Well, Chris Tucker actually falls into the amazing stories of the road, the journey. Let's uh, go back to 1993. I'm at the Bay Area Comedy Competition, Black Comedy Competition up in Oakland. You know, every time you talk, your assistant Carlos is like in the background, like at a Martin Luther King speech. Mm. <laughs> that's, uh-huh. that's, deacon, that's my deacon. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Say it, brother. But, but, but he knows this story, <laughs> right? The story goes like this. We're getting ready to shoot the second season of Deaf Comedy Jam. So I'm asked to be a judge at the Bay Area Comedy Competition on a Saturday night. So Now this is one of the biggest comedy competitions in the world. And as many people know, Mark Curry won the competition long ago. And this is what's tough about our business. You see Mark Curry and you think, hanging with Mr. Cooper, that guy? But you don't understand that he was one of, he still is I think one of the greatest comedians to walk this planet. But because he did a show for 100 episodes that was soft and you didn't see his persona, you think of him that way and he's branded that way. But he was a genius and he still is if you see him perform today. Well, if, if with, you know, the power of YouTube and this, that, and the other, if you look at his HBO specials, they were hot. You know, they were hot. Yeah. But Mark won, you know, DL won. A lot of those guys won at the um, at the um, Bay Area Comedy Competition. But on this particular night, like I said, I had come in to judge on Saturday, but it's three nights. It's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It's 60 comedians. It's 20 comedians per night. The top seven, this is the preliminary round, the top seven from each night move into the quarterfinal round. Okay, so I go in on Friday because I'm looking to put together, I'm not just looking for the winner of the festival, I'm looking to find 60 comedians to be on the next season of Def Comedy Jam. So as part of my travel, I might as well kill two birds with one stone on this particular uh, weekend. So I'm sitting in my uh, seat in the audience and I'm watching these 20 comedians perform. And the top seven, as I said, would move into the the next round. So at the end of the show, they walk the 20 comedians back out on the stage and they ask for, when they call your name, to step out in front. And then, you know, they'll have their seven and everybody else go on to the back, okay? Now, the judges were, you know, on presentation and then there was a crowd, uh, audience participation and, you know, delivery, whatever, whatever they were judging you you on. So as I'm watching this show, this one comedian, I just, I see, I say he's perfect for the next season, okay? So now when they all walk out 
and they call each comedian to, you know, step in front, they get to six and they haven't called my man's name out yet. And I'm saying to myself, number seven must be him. Okay. When they called that seventh person and it wasn't him, you should have saw me jump out my chair. I jumped out my chair so fast because remember, we're in Oakland. We're in the Bay Area. I said, let me go catch this guy before he go jump off the Golden Gate. Seriously. I walked up to him. I said, I know you, you may not know me, man, but my name's Bob Sumner. I have this new show called Def Comedy Jam, and I just want you to know that although it didn't work out for you tonight, I need your number because I'm using you on this show. And the next thing I know, he does our show, and then the next thing I know, he becomes a cult favorite by playing this role of Smokey in a movie called Friday, and it was Chris Tucker. Okay? So I always tell people if I'm ever judging a contest, I like to speak to the participants before the contest because it's very important to know that you don't have to come in first place to come in first place. Chris Rock. Chris Rock, you know, I use that term preparation with Martin. I need to I need to say preparation to the second power with Chrissy. Okay? And I say that because this guy here, he doesn't just go out, you know, on 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 a on a special and mail it in for the sake of making a couple extra dollars. He prepares himself. He goes to clubs all over the country working out his material then he comes and it's genius like i never forget when you know we do the show on tuesday night at the comedy store chris called he wanted to know if he could prepare uh for the bet awards he came on that stage and he worked it all out and it was like a genius performance and the thing about chris is he's never been one of them guys that travel with a whole lot of people. You know, he's just a humble, he's a real cat. And and I never forget the Jacksonville Comedy Festival, I think it was. And I can honestly say, and this is crazy, because I had been doing something, and when I got down there, Chris was in the airport. He said, man, it's about time you got here. He was like the, I was like the last one getting there. And I never forget, I went down there and I ran into Jim Brewer, and Dave Chappelle, and it was like an episode. It was like a, a it was like a a, a scene from Half Baked. <laughs> it really was. But Chris was just he's just so he's so real. I I came over to the Laugh Factory one day. I drove up. Chris is standing outside again. He's saying to me, "Man, I, I knew you was gonna be down here, and I wanted to holler at you about something." He wanted to tell me how we should take the comedy show to London because he had just come from London because he was preparing for that, you know, that show that he, that big show he did with HBO. And he was telling me about how London reminded him so much on how we used to hang out in the early nineties down in Greenwich village. And it really was like that. The guy is just so smart and he thinks ahead of the game. Chris Rock is the man. The late Bernie Mac. Mm. The late Bernie Mac is a special individual. 
a very special individual that it just makes me feel so good that when he left this earth, I, when you say six degrees of separation, I was able to provide for him or help him provide for his family. And, and when I first came to Chicago to do a showcase, Bernie had brought me there. He was hosting a room called Spices, and it was a Sunday night. And Bernie put me in this booth. I had my little camera with me that one of his comedian friends, who I didn't know was a comedian at the time, was filming. And somebody pulled my plug, and I kind of lost it. And the young lady that was sitting in the booth with me, who was having a great time, who was also a friend of Bernie's, she told me just to chill. Her name was Phyllis Hyman. I don't know if anybody remember the late, great Phyllis Hyman, but it was Phyllis. And... You know, it was just, I never forget how Bernie brought me to Chicago and I had a hotel room that he took me to on Michigan Ave across from Lake uh, uh, Lake Michigan. And I'm like loving the fact that I'm in Chicago now. And I get up to my room and I lift up the, um, I pull the uh, drapes back to, you know, look at the scenery in Chicago. And it was a brick wall. I called Bernie. He was driving a little Toyota uh, uh, Corolla at the time. I said, bro, you have to come back here and get me, man, because I'm not staying here. And he was like, what's happening, man? I said, when you get up here, I'll show you. And Bernie came up. I said, look at my view. Bernie got my bags and took me to another hotel, and it was no problem. He was like a, a great man. And I, I, I took him from driving a Wonder Bread truck to becoming Bernie Mac. And I really didn't realize the importance of, you know, meeting Bernie until I, you know, on his, you know, the audio version of his book, he said that I was the guy who actually really jump-started his career. And I can honestly say I love Bernie Mac. Awesome. Jamie Foxx. Jamie Foxx, for me, if there was a word, it would be smart. And if you want to hear the story on why I say smart, it goes a little something like this. I, I, have, to, I have to give kudos to Michael Williams. Michael Williams owned the Comedy Act Theater in the Crenshaw District of Los Angeles. The bullet holes on the door. As well as, <laughs> as, well as he had a, uh, the Comedy Act Theater down in a, a Atlanta where I saw Bernie at. Uh, his brother Gary ran that. So I was coming to, uh, wow, you just took me to another story. But I was coming to the uh, Comedy Act Theater to look at some talent. And... Um, Robin Harris had had just uh, recently passed away, maybe not even a year. So I'm there, and D.L. Hughley was actually hosting at the time. And it was like everybody had kind of knew about this Def Comedy Jam thing. So I'm like, I come in there like I'm Barry Gordy or somebody. It was crazy, right? And the reason I say Barry Gordy, because Jamie Foxx saw me. First time I met Jamie. And Jamie said to me, that he knew I was from Def Jam Records, okay? Now, this is Jamie Foxx, who's doing his thing as Wanda 
on In Living Color, because In Living Color, he had already been doing his thing. But nobody knew that Jamie was a musician. And when I watch Jamie's VH1 Driven, and I'm watching this thing because I know his story, and I said, if they don't cover Jamie as a musician, this thing ain't working. Sure enough, whoever the producers of that show was, they went into his music part. And that's what I knew Jamie as. Because when Jamie, he asked me, he said, you mind coming out to my car? Because I want you to hear something. He said, I'm, I play keys and I sing, right? And I never forget, he was driving like a, 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 what you call them things? It was like a Jetta. He was like a Jetta that opened up from one side. So he had to get in first. And then I got in. And he took his cassette and he put it in the um in into the player. And I'm listening to Jamie Foxx sing and play. And I'm saying to myself, this guy is every bit as great a musician as he is a stand-up comedian. And the next thing I know, he gets a record deal to go along with his stand-up act. So that's what I remember most about Jamie Foxx being so multi-talented. Tracy Morgan. Tracy Morgan. And you and I have had this conversation. I have a photo of Tracy Morgan at the Peppermint with his little beanie on that spin and everything and knowing that Tracy got the role of Hustle Man through his performance on Def Comedy Jam. Hustle Martin, Man and Martin. Martin loved him and, and and brought him along and that was the beginning of Tracy Morgan. But what I remember about Tracy more so than anything else was how success didn't go to his head. Okay, and that's real talk. And Tracy was an underdog coming out of that Uptown Comedy Club crew. You know, no one expected Tracy to reach the level that he reached. But when he got that opportunity to be on SNL, the rest was history. But I went to see Rick James, the late Rick James. I went to see Rick at B.B. King's, okay? And the place was packed. And when Tracy Morgan saw me, it was like, Bob, you coming to sit with me? We're going up to the front. And Tracy goes, Mike, this is Bob Sumner, bam, bam, bam. And I'm like, wait a minute. This is Mike Tyson? <laughs> okay? I'm sitting there watching Rick James in between Mike Tyson and Tracy Morgan. Three super freaks and one normal guy. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was such a great time, but that's the thing about Tracy. Tracy's just, you know, never forget where he come from. And that's why and, and, and I have to give it up and rest in peace, Uncle Jimmy Mack. Because Tracy brought Jimmy along, he brought Artie along, and hey, it's a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing to watch what Tracy's career turned into. Referring to the tragic accident on the highway that uh, oh, man. claimed Jimmy Mack's life and injured Artie and Tracy. Yeah. And I ran into Harris recently. Harris Stanton. Who oh, Harris Stanton. Harris, you know, Harris, Harris didn't get injured. You know, he just hurt his arm a little bit. But uh, I never will forget that, man. The Wayans family. The Wayans family is, uh, <laughs> what, the first family of comedy, I guess you can call them, right? Um, just great people. Uh, everybody has their, their their lane with them. 
But um, you know, Marlon, I, I I know Damon and Marlon probably more so than any of them. And um, you know, like with Damon, for instance, uh, his son, Damon Jr. When I first met Damon Jr., he he introduced him to me to to my, as as Kyle Green, and I never forget. After I watched him perform, I said, man, you don't have to be Kyle Green. You could be Damon Wayans Jr. You know, he was just trying to separate himself from everything. But when you look at him, it was, you know. But when I when we came back to do Def Comedy Jam in the first season, everybody, they were into trying to bring the stars back, the guys who careers I launched. And it just didn't have that same flavor because it was all about hungry. You know, it was all about that comedian that could really go for it. And it really didn't happen that first season. But then when we came back with the second season, I was able to identify who the next crew was. And one of them was definitely Damon Wayans Jr. And he got on that stage and he killed. And I never forget Damon Sr. came to me and all he said to me was, thank you, Bob. And that was enough for me. So... Big shout out to mom and pop's Wayans because he raised a heck of a crew. Monique. Here's a good one. Here's a good one. And remember, with me, even though I was hitting my head back in 05. I want you, you to know, know I've, I've been doing this a long time. Mm-hmm. I've never felt compelled to ask somebody about so many people in my life as I've asked you because I'm. Uh, I think our audience will love to hear these things. I hope you don't mind me asking. No, you. I mean the thing is, it, it, it it's real cool that um, you've given me an opportunity to show the world who was behind Def Comedy Jam. You know, in terms of the architect. You know, Ebony Magazine said that you know Russell and Stan were the engine. And I was the conductor. And they, they couldn't be, you know, it is what it is. So anything that you say or ask me, I'm going to be straight up and talk about it unless I decide to change the subject. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, you may change the subject in about five minutes. Well, but... I mean, it, 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 and it's going to be what it is, All okay? Right. Um, but at the same time, you know, with Monique, I, I, I must say this. Uh, I love Monique, you know? Uh, because I watched her grind from Baltimore to Atlanta, back to Baltimore. And it always amazed me, before I go into it, it always amazed me how, like, Monique had a comedy club, you remember? She had a comedy club in Baltimore. Steve Harvey had a comedy club in Dallas. But they don't have comedy clubs anymore, and now they're mega stars. And it just seems to me that, you know, you have the improvs and the funny bones and stuff, but these guys, and you know the improvs and funny bones really wasn't checking for black comedy that tough back in the day, unless your name was Mario Joyner or Michael Winslow or Jimmy J.J. Walker. You know what I'm saying? So it's just interesting to see what has happened. And hopefully somebody can come and, you know, franchise a comedy club or whatever. But just to say, Monique, um, back in the late 90s, I think it was the, the last season of Def Comedy Jam when we moved from New York to L.A., we had shot the show here. And Monique's performance, when we went into the editing bay, Monique was on tour with me, okay? But when we went into the editing bay and Stan and I looked at her performance, it wasn't really becoming of the direction that we were trying to take Def Comedy Jam now. At first, Def Comedy Jam was, you know, bring your nightclub act. And that's why 
if you took a, a one comedian's HBO special and they were using a lot of four letter words and stuff, it didn't seem like it was that all over the top. But when you saw a Def Comedy Jam and you see three or four comedians doing it, it seemed like everybody's just cussing. And that's why that clean comedian, when you asked that, how did you mix and match it? It was kind of weird. But in Monique's case, the material that she was using was kind of all over the place. So instead of airing it, we decided that we would just bring her back when we when we tape again. Okay? Now, we have a show at the Universal. And I knew that I wasn't going to use Monique's set on Def Jam. However... It was kind of like if I was keeping it inside and I had to tell somebody. So who better to talk to than her husband? Okay? I spoke to her husband. Now, this is before the show. Okay? I spoke to her husband, at her, her ex-husband, and, and I understand why it's her ex-husband. Okay? Because I said to him, I said, listen, this is what's happening. I'm going to keep her on tour with us, but I'm going to have her reshoot her um, her set because, you know, I just, I don't think it's right, okay? Five minutes later, maybe six, here comes Monique storming out of her dressing room. We got a show to do. She's going off on why... She's not going to be airing this season. And I'm like, Mo, everything's cool. I'm keeping you on tour. I'm going to use you. But this is what it is. And then I looked down because her husband at the time was little guy. I looked at him. I'm like, man, I can't believe you just did this. But okay, we'll deal with this. Jay Moore is a great expression. Don't spook the thoroughbreds. <laughs> man. So now here comes the show. Okay. The show's over, and this is on the uh, this is on the Saturday. I'm staying in L.A. for meetings on 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 Sunday on um Monday, okay. So now I get a call from the producers of the Moesha show, okay. They just happen to be at the Universal that night, all right. They are working on a spinoff for Countess Vaughn, okay? And they saw a young lady on our stage who they think would be the perfect match for Countess. That's how Nikki Parker was born. Wow. True story. That's going to be your book, True Story. Steve Harvey. Steve Harvey, amongst the countless Steve Harvey stories that I have, one being Steve Harvey, I think, might have been my first television credit. Steve did a special, and he thanked me, and it was only a couple people who he thanked, and I just thought that that was so, so cool. That was years ago. I don't even know. I wonder if Steve even remember who I am. I haven't seen him in so long. That's one of the things about our profession <laughs> that's that's very strange is that credits don't cost anything. Yeah. They don't cost anything. If you have a production, 
and somebody's asking for a little bit of a higher credit, give them the credit. Right. Right. You, you special thanks. I want to put some. Yeah. Give them the. Ain't nothing wrong with that. And that's what. And Steve, you know, Steve, Steve reached out then, and Steve, you know, Steve was just always a good guy, you know. And and and, and but the but the thing that I remember most about Steve, and Barry's mentioned our room in Jersey, the peppermint. If you could work the peppermint, you could definitely do Def Comedy Jam, and that's why Cheryl drove so far. You know, to do Def Comedy Jam because Cheryl I even, Underwood. you know, I I know Cheryl's story, that whole story about the king, the queens of comedy. I know that story, and it's like again, I do the remix because I got the remix. But with Steve, he came into. We're sitting in the car, and he's getting ready to go into the Peppermint to perform this particular night, and I know that he has his set all, you know, ready to roll and stuff. But Steve had never been in the peppermint. So now when we walk into the peppermint, Steve is in amazement because it was the peppermint entertainment complex. So we had this big, it was like a soundstage. And when, you know, Barry was talking about the 200 people in these comedy clubs and stuff, the peppermint held 500. And we were packed every Thursday night. Snow nights on a on a on a snow night we might do 300 people but normally we would turn away close to 500 and we would have 500 in this room bill bellamy was the host and when bill left to come to hollywood i replaced him with mike epps so imagine that and all of these other deaf comedy jam acts coming in and you have the wayans over there you have russell over there you have latifah and naughty and they were hot but it was like a crazy place and really a documentary could be done about this place they did one on on um all jokes aside and we were like whoo way over that but this particular night steve comes in and by it being an entertainment complex you had jazz here you had the top of the mint was a disco you had the comedy in the back and you had the best soul food in america the oxtails was something to die for okay so steve hits the stage and steve's whole set was based off the peppermint and what he had saw and that's why when we talk about a comedian having a point of view and having something to talk about it was steve steve talked about the peppermint and i never forget the last line on everything was and i ain't seen one fucking peppermint in here yet (laughs) (laughs) you know so that was steve harvey awesome (laughs) i'm proud of you steve Russell Simmons. Russell Simmons gave me my opportunity. And I'm forever grateful for what he's done. I mean, to the point, here's the point. Russell is the guy who created Laugh Mob. Okay? And let me tell you why. Because Russell told me one day, when I went into his Rush Communications office, He said, Bob, what you have to really do is create your own space because no matter what you do here with us, it's never yours. You have to get yours. Now, I'm always here, and Russell is my man. I'm always here if you need me, okay? And I know that for a fact because one time I was leaving the company and Russell called me 6 o'clock in the morning to meet him at the Time Cafe so we could talk about it. And 
I, I stay. I know, you know, we have a certain type of thing. So when I see him here in Hollywood doing what he's doing, it's an extension of me, just like I'm an extension of him doing what I'm doing, okay? But at the same time, when I left Seton Hall University and was trying to figure out what color was my parachute, I took jobs working in the corporate world. I knew it wasn't me, okay? But then by me, and this is real, let me tell you this story. By me being the go-getter that I was, okay, I was promoting not just comedy shows, but I also was doing jazz in this same comedy club, Terminal D, okay? When I moved out of, I had Terminal D doing the jazz, and I also had a place in Elizabeth, New Jersey called the Uptown uh, uh, Cafe, and I was promoting jazz. So now... A lot of people, I was bigger in the jazz world than the comedy world at the time. But what was happening was I was getting an overflow of jazz musicians trying to perform at, at places. So I got a call from uh, a young lady who her cousin worked for Gregory Hines. Okay. So she had this Columbia Records artist that she was trying to... Um, get some work for so i didn't have any openings at the club but i said that i there's a jazz festival that um is happening up in austin new york and maybe i can get him on on this bill okay and at the same time i had bill bellamy on the show this is i'm telling you bill we i was trying to get him anywhere possible okay so bill's on this show so now after the show the young lady who I had gotten her jazz act on, we're sitting at this table and she says to Bill, I really like you and you know, maybe you know, we could do something. So now I've been talking to this lady for a minute, but I never knew what else she did for a living. She hands Bill this card and it said, operations director, Def Jam Records. I'm like, Death Jam, like wow! And now here I am trying to figure out how I'm gonna get out the corporate world, you know, and, and this, that, and the other. So I called her when we got back, you know, after I called her because I said, you know what? Let me see if let me follow up on this. Let me see if Bill could open up for Public Enemy, or can you imagine that? Or you know, one of the acts, LL, or whatever the case may be. She said, Bob, I'm so happy that you called, right? I said, what's up? She said, I just got a promotion. Her name's Carmen Ashers. She said, I just got a promotion to president of the company. Huh? Right? <laughs> she said, and I'm looking for an assistant. Do you know anybody? I said, I'll do it. <laughs> she was like, are you serious? She's thinking because I'm wearing suits every day, schoolboy glasses and stuff, right? I said, I'll do it. She said, what she said, well, just uh, send me over, right? Uh, this is before fax machines, I think. And she was like, um, get me your, you know, resume, bring your resume. No, bring your resume over, boom, boom. I put on my suit, this, that, and the other. I'm going over to Def Jam Records. I can't believe it. I got on the elevator, and as I'm getting on the elevator, who's coming off the elevator? Russell Simmons, right? <laughs> Russell had a chinchilla on. I never forget this, right? And I'm saying to myself, 
this ain't Blair Underwood. <laughs> because, you know, Crush Groove was a... So here's Russell. We nod our head, boom, boom, boom. And I go upstairs, and we're talking, me and Carmen and I, and we're talking, and she never, ever even talked about my resume or nothing. It was like I had the gig when I got there. Didn't realize it, right? So now she says to me, you start on the 19th. I'm going to be the secretary, basically, at Def Jam Records for the president. That's why I know every element of, the, of a record company, okay? Now, and this is long before Def, Def Comedy Jam, but I was doing comedy and everything on, 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 on the other side, right? But the trip was when I left Carmen's office. Now, remember, I was working corporate, and I was like robbing Peter to pay Paul just to get a new white shirt and a new tie, okay? And I had on my suit and everything, and Carmen said to me, she said, Bob, just do me one favor. You can leave the suit home. You know, so that's how that whole thing happened. And then when I got back home, I had an answering machine, right? And and she was on the answering machine and she said, uh, we changed it. You don't start March 19th. You start March 13th. So it was like, I couldn't believe this. So my first day walking past the Boston, coming off the path, going through Washington Square Park, who comes up on me? MTV, MTV was hot at the time. And MTV want to interview me because they asked me if I'm into music. This is, so am I into music? I was so into Parliament Funkadelic that it was ridiculous. So they wanted to interview me. So I said, okay, I want to do it like this because I knew that they like to do crazy stuff. I went on top of the monkey bars and was looking down and they shot me from there. And then I went on to work and that was my first day at Def Jam. And that was the beginning. And then once Russell and I connected, it was more than just what it was. You know what I'm saying? So again, in terms of Russell, you know, he, he, he allowed me to become who I've become. Fantastic. Your proudest moment in show business. I have quite a few. I have quite a few proud moments in show business. And Carlos will tell you that um, just recently, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, you know, with social media now, you see a lot of chat rooms and this, that, and the other. And somebody recently sent me a, a, a feed that mentioned my name from 07. Now, I did college radio, and it was very popular in the early 80s. And in this feed, they was talking about the best radio shows ever, commercial shows and stuff. And in the feed, some guy started talking about how he used to listen to this guy named Bobby Sumner on the radio from that far back. And it blew everybody's mind that in 07, this guy still remembered me from 85, you know, and... That was a proud moment recently, but but more so than anything, my proudest moment happened on March 14th. Or was it? No, March 7th of 1992. Saturday morning, it's about 7.30 a.m., right? I get a phone call. Know who it was? 
it was the town mortician, Gigi Woody, right? Gigi Woody, very well known, of course, in my neighborhood. He was the funeral director. You know what he said to me? He said, I was watching this television show last night on HBO. And I'd never seen anything like it in my life. And when the show went off, I was reading the credits. And it said, talent coordinator, Bob Sumner. Bobby, is that you? <laughs> and I said, yes, Mr. Woody. And he remembers me from being the athlete and the guy hanging on the corner. And he said to me, I am so proud of you. And from that moment on, I said to myself, you're on. Beautiful. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to turn it around and put it towards good use to open up doors for you in the future. <laughs> I think my biggest disappointment in show business goes back to that day when I walked into Russell's office. When I walked into Russell's office, because they were so successful now with another project that I had helped them get going called Deaf Poetry, okay? When they were doing Deaf Poetry, they really forgot about the comedy component of, 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 of Deaf Jam. And by Russell telling me that I had to go create my own, it was kind of disappointing to hear that c comedy wasn't of interest to him at the time. Okay, so that was disappointing. But then it helped me flip into what is now Laugh Mob. You know what I mean? And that's one thing that I always, you know, adhered to when I was coming up was to be able to turn negatives into positives and a lot of it came from my godfather who once said to me when i was 11 years old he said bobby you could walk with kings and queens but don't ever lose the common touch you know what i'm saying so that's been my whole moniker since then you know so i'm i'm one of those guys that i'm always gonna win you know because losers don't win winners win you know what i'm saying god that's fantastic mm -hmm. last question You've seen everything, and you've been an executive producer and producer mm -hmm. of so many different things. So it's a two-part question. What advice do you have for the young person out there who uh, is trying to become the kind of creator and executive producer that you become uh, to get to the next level? And secondly, what advice do you have for the young performer that is taking a train across town to get a dollar and then borrow $150 to get where they need to go to get to the point where they're owning Bentleys and Rolls Royces and having the respect of everybody in the world. So one of the things that you must do is keep the faith, okay? Don't start something that you can't finish. And don't think that Rome's going to just be built in a day, 
You know, you really have to put forth forth that effort and be serious about it. And if you're going to finally, if you're going to end up with management or agents and stuff like that, be loyal to who you're working with because there's nothing worse than calling somebody and you hear that somebody else has made that phone call for them. I can't trust you because you're all about self. So understand that it's all about, you know, if, 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 if you're raising that family, keep it family. Okay, because a lot of people are here out here aren't for you. And just like watch who you go to that audition with, you know, because somebody else is going for your spot and it might be the same guy who you rode with, you know, and don't think that you you locked every job up because when I walked out the room thinking I had the job, I didn't know Denzel was going to call. You understand? So it's very, very important that you stick 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 with what you plan on doing and then and know the history and no don't be wondering who charlie barnett is in the picture know who charlie barnett is and there's a couple right now i just finished watching um the history of television they talked about uh sitcoms funny ladies and stuff and to hear some of the stories to hear that mary tyler moore went for a job that she didn't get but by her going to the audition, okay, okay, Danny Thomas, who who was producing this one show, who also he wanted Mary Tyler Moore possibly, but she didn't fit the part. But he was becoming a producer on this other show that they wanted to use. Uh, Carl Reiner, I believe it was. He decided to give it to Dick Van Dyke. He didn't fit the thing, but they needed a wife, and they looking for the right wife. And Danny remembered that it was this young lady that didn't work for him, but maybe she could become Laura Petrie. And that was Mary Tyler Moore, who became the Mary Tyler Moore show that became Rotor, that became this, that, and the other. Okay, Lou Grant, and this, that, and the other. So what I'm saying is don't think that it's all about making dollars. Like when Bill did the thing with the MTV, if Bill would have just been looking for dollars, he wouldn't have been able to make dollars. But we all know that dollars make sense if you're making sense. Holy shit, Bob Sumner. That was just fantastic. I mean, what a great... Have you is everything cool? <laughs> Everybody out there in TV land and Facebook land and all, y'all good? Hey, Bob, have you ever done like a long form podcast like this before? I've, I mean, I started a read. I used to do interviews. No, but I mean, have you ever done a podcast like where somebody interviewed you for ninety minutes or well, two? Well, no, hours? this is crazy because it's like you know we could go. It's so much, B. But see, with you, it's so easy because you lived it. Every day when I would leave Def Jam Records, I would go to the Boston Comedy Club before I caught my train. He knows this, okay? And I would see Ray Romano in there. I would see Louis C.K. in there. I would see a young Jim Norton. There was a guy named Rob McNaughty, okay? Let's talk about... An impressionist. Hey, Rob McNaughty, Jim Brewer, these guys were youngins, okay? So it's like Jay Moore was the big star. You know what I'm saying? It, 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 we can go on and on. And then after we did, you know, we had the Peppermint and they had the Uptown Comedy Club. They had a Sunday night with this kid, Talent, who I put Talent in Sunset Park. Remember that? Yeah. With Terrence Howard. You know, you talk about careers and where they go. 
He had this room at the Boston on Sundays that who's who in Hollywood, like the same way they do these things out here, it was like that in, in L.A. and, and I mean, in and New I York. I honestly had oh. no idea what because all these rooms all around New York were all run by black promoters and I was the only white, you know, it's like, oh, and I had no idea what I had on my hands, but this guy talent was just such a special kind of guy. <laughs> it was just, there was so, this, it was so cool. Anyway, yeah. Bob, I love you. I love You're you the man. Yeah. This has been so much fun. You are so inspirational. Thanks, man. I'm so glad you did this and uh, I'm looking forward to spending more time with you. It's great oh. to see you, man. We need to collab on something. I would love you know? that. Yeah, I would we love need to collab. that. We need to just figure it out because it's only right, bro. We could create you know? something yeah, together. Yeah, I mean, really. You heard it here first. All right. Right here with BK. All right. Thank you. And no I BS. <laughs> <laughs> they say it's the glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame you get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same Pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.